If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 26, as this morning, Lord willing, we'll examine verses 17 through 30. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 17. Now on the first day of the unleavened, on the first day of unleavened bread, The disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray. In just a little while, we will come, O God, to the Lord's table and partake of this cracker and grape juice that has been prepared. For many of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, we have partaken of that meal many times, and yet we understand that we cannot fathom the full significance and the glory of all that it represents. We ask this morning that your Holy Spirit, as we meditate on this portion of your word and these moments in the life of our Lord, that you would change us, that you would continue to teach us about him, that we may love him, not betray him, but love him and serve him all our days. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in our series of preaching through Matthew over many years, we've come now 
to these last three chapters, which slow down, as it were, and focus on the last days, hours of our Lord up unto the cross, and then, of course, his burial and his resurrection. And again, this morning, I find, as I sent out an email earlier this week, find that God's providence is amazing, as I could not have planned that it would just so happen that on the first day of the month, we would be celebrating the Lord's Supper and that we would be coming to this passage this morning in which Jesus establishes the Lord's Supper. There's a lot going on here, and, and we could slow down, and I am sorely tempted to slow down, but I am on a mission to, God willing, preach through these remaining chapters so that we land, as it were, on Easter on the resurrection text at the close of the Gospel of Matthew. So a few observations up front this morning. I want you to notice that the way that the Holy Spirit, through Matthew, records this account, and as in the other Gospels, the covenant faithfulness of God, God's covenant faithfulness to his people and to his word is is sandwiched or surrounded by the unfaithfulness of men. We've seen how the chief priests and the elders of Israel had conspired to betray Christ, and that Judas, inspired by the Holy, rather the Holy Spirit, the demonic spirit, Satan, he desired to betray Jesus. Judas had gone and conspired with the chief priests and the elders and He had agreed for 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus, whom he had walked with and served for three years and seen up close Jesus' integrity. The table is set for the betrayal and the crucifixion of Christ at this point. But God's plan is unfolding right on time. There's one little detail I, I neglected to point out last Sunday, You notice that back in chapter 26, verse 5, when they were plotting together the elders and chief priests to betray Christ, they had said not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur. They had determined that this time of the unleavened bread, the feast of the Passover, would not be the right time to betray Christ or to kill Christ. But God's time was this time. And so, God even sovereignly overruled Satan and Judas and determined that this was the time when all of his promises concerning the provision of a sacrifice for his people for their sins would come to pass. So there's this contrast between the faithfulness of God, the integrity and the faithfulness of Jesus, and the unfaithfulness and sinfulness of Of sinful mankind. It's a tragedy, and yet it is triumph. It is the triumph of the Word of God, of the prophecies that had been made that God would provide a sacrifice. God's promised plan is unfolding on schedule, right on time, according to His sovereign will prophesied in the Scriptures. And I want this morning, as we examine this passage, I want to use three other Old Testament passages at least, but three primary passages to frame our consideration of this passage this morning. 
The first is found in Exodus chapter 12, and I want to turn there, if you would, with me. And I want to read a significant portion, because most of us, we're not Jewish, we we haven't been at a Passover meal or Seder, and, and we haven't, we don't really understand what's going on. This is foreign to us, this unleavened bread and and this sacrificial lamb. And even if we're believers who have known our Bibles for some time, we need to be reminded of the significance and the historical background of the unleavened bread and the Passover. So I want to begin there this morning. Exodus chapter 12, and I'm going to read beginning in verse 1. Remember that the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the 12 tribes, were in bondage and slavery at this point in Egypt, in cruel slavery. Their children even were being slaughtered. They were truly slaves in the most demeaning of the most demeaning kind. They were cruelly overseen by the Egyptian pharaohs at this point. God in his mercy had determined to bring them out of captivity, out of bondage and out of slavery. And so on the eve when he was on the eve of when he was going to do this, he gave instructions to Moses as to how the people of Israel would be provided for and also how they would escape the final judgment on Egypt. God would go through and kill each of the firstborn sons of each household. And the Israelites would not be exempt from that judgment for they were sinners as well unless they followed God's prescription. Slaughtering of an innocent lamb of that blood with a hyssop branch. Remember David's reference to a hyssop branch in Psalm 51 this morning. With that branch, the blood would be, remember, coated onto the frame of the door as a sign of trust in God's provision to escape judgment. So with that context, let's begin in chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. You shall eat it in this manner." with your loins girded, with your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. 
and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, you shall have a holy assembly and another holy assembly on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them except what must be eaten by every person. That alone may be prepared by you. You shall also observe the feast of unleavened bread, For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses. For whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is alien or a native of the land. You shall not eat anything leavened. In all your dwellings you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts. And none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your house to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall observe this rite. And when your children say to you, what does this right mean to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes and the people bowed low and worshiped. Then the sons of Israel went and did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron So they did. We'll stop our reading there. I wanted to take time to read this passage because it is only in understanding this passage, or at least having it fresh in our minds, that when we come to Matthew chapter 26 and we hear of preparations, verse 17 of the unleavened bread, we understand a little bit of the background. And this is not incidental. This is intended by God. God intended, through setting forth this feast of unleavened bread, in which also a lamb would be slain, its blood would be collected, 
and spread on the door lintels and on the frame as a sign of how God would provide for escape from judgment. This was to be honored and remembered throughout the generations. And Jesus and his disciples in Jerusalem during the feast of unleavened bread, during the week building up to Passover, they intended as devout Jewish men to honor God and to remember this memorial meal together. The blood of an innocent lamb slain was a sign of faith in God's provision of escape from judgment for sin. Let me say that again. The blood of an innocent lamb was intended by God to be a sign that the people could express their faith in God's provision of escape from judgment for sin. Unleavened bread. Notice the insistence that all leaven was to be meticulously removed from the house. No one was to touch it. And in that instance, God used leaven as an illustration of sin and that they were to be holy, a holy people. And unleavened bread was a sign of faith in God's provision to provide escape from slavery, not merely in Egypt, but slavery from sin. This was the meal that they were to remember. And of course, throughout the generations, the significance of humility and trusting in God's provision was lost. And by and large, for many people, it just became another holiday, a religious festival, and the aspect of a sinner needing to trust in God for escape from judgment was lost on them. But it was not lost on Jesus. There's so much to this occasion, and it's recorded in each of the Gospels. We also have in the Gospel of John, Jesus, during this time, washing his disciples' feet. There's so much here that the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures wants believers in Christ to meditate on. But just think with me for a moment. The lamb would have to be selected. There would be thousands and thousands of lambs in Jerusalem at this time as hundreds of thousands of people came to celebrate the Passover. At some point, the lamb would have to be selected. We don't know, we're not told whether it was Jesus' disciples or whether it was Jesus himself. But think of it. Jesus saw the little lamb, perhaps even selected it, that would be slain and sacrificed, knowing all the while that he was the true lamb, through his sacrifice would take away the sins of the world. He goes into the feast knowing who it is that will betray him. He knows that he is the fulfillment of God's promises. He knows that he is the lamb that is to be slain. He knows that his disciples will betray him, or at least one will betray him and the others will leave him alone. 
abandon him. These amazing moments. Think of Jesus even washing Judas' feet. Wow. Of serving him, not in malice, but in compassion, knowing that this man was doomed in his pride and in his sin. In these moments, we want to keep our eye on Jesus. We want to keep our eye on the Lamb. We have lots of questions, but we cannot go wrong when we, in the Gospels, keep our focus and our eye, as it were, on Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover and the unleavened Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's for this reason when the angel Gabriel announced to to Mary and to Joseph his name, and we've referenced this many times, but it's key in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Jesus was called Jesus because he would save his people, not from Egypt, not from the Romans, but save them from their bondage and slavery to sin. And as John in John chapter 1, John the Baptist would declare, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so let's look first of all at verses 17 through 19. As the Lamb prepares, briefly, this is just the preparation here. On the first day of unleavened bread. So here they are recognizing and observing this feast that memorial feast that God had commanded to be observed throughout the generations. And the disciples come to Jesus, the rabbi, and they ask him, verse 17, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And what we learn is that in verse 18, God has already provided. And we don't know, we don't know what, how this was done, um, but someone who knew Jesus Someone who had known of Jesus' ministry, likely a well-to-do person in Jerusalem with a rather large room. This isn't a huge space, but large enough to host Jesus and these 12 men. The room's already been prepared. So he tells them, verse 18, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. My time is near. Jesus knows exactly what's happening. He knows the schedule. He knows what must be done. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So whoever this person is, they know Jesus. They call him Lord. They call him Master. And they immediately provide this room for the disciples. And so the disciples did, verse 19, as Jesus directed them, and they prepared the Passover. This is on Thursday. Jesus is crucified on Friday. This is Thursday. And a large part of Thursday, we're not told exactly what Jesus was doing before the Passover meal in the evening. It's, it's a time of silence in, in the scriptures. But it was a day of preparation. His disciples had to uh, pre- prepare the, the lamb and have it slaughtered and have it its blood brought to the temple and splashed against the altar by one of the priests. There, was, there, was, there were things to be done in order for the feast to be carried out properly. And that was what Thursday was for. The room was made ready. The room was made provisioned with what they needed for the meal. One author who wrote um, a commentary on the whole life and ministry of Christ 
Um, he, it's speculation, but wonders if this is the very room where Christ's disciples met after he was crucified and after he was where Jesus met them. It, it could be. It could be that this upper room is, is the place where so many of the significant events in the early moments of the church took place. But God had provided a room, and the lamb is prepared. Think about it. The lamb who is to be slaughtered is the one who's making, essentially, the, pre- the prepare- preparations. He's prepared a room. He's prepared himself. He knows that his betrayer is be pre- prepared, looking for an opportunity But the lamb is going to see that God's intended purposes are carried out. Interesting to think that maybe Judas was not, didn't, couldn't know where they were going to meet until that day because it would be too easy to be a, find Jesus there with his disciples and to portray him there. The design, the sovereignty of God in protecting Jesus up until the moment that, according to the plan of God, the lamb would be slaughtered. The lamb prepares. Secondly, in verses 20 through 25, we see that the lamb knows. He knows who will betray him. And yet he goes ahead willingly, knowingly. The evening has come, and at this special meal, they would recline at a table. I wouldn't particularly like, you know, leaning on one elbow and eating, but this was just part of the way that this meal was recognized as being extra special. Um, Some of you, maybe for Christmas or Thanksgiving or other times, or maybe your grandmother or grandparents, at at certain times of the year, certain tablecloths came out, certain dishes came out. Uh, certain glasses which were reserved and that's the idea is that this is this is, a, this is the most important meal and festival in Israel's history the oldest one the most significant one and they're reclining there together at this table which has been prepared the meal would have certain stages to it and throughout the meal psalms would be sung uh, from psalms 111 to Psalm 118, I want to end this morning on Psalm 118 if we have time. So there was a liturgy, if you will, there was an order to this. And the head of the household would lead through the meal and and certain questions would be asked. All of these disciples are familiar with this, these Jewish men. They participate willingly and yet they do not understand this full significance of what is taking place. And Jesus shares his heart, but also, again in verse 15, to prepare his disciples. I think he's primarily giving them a heads up. It's shocking that one of their own would be the means for his betrayal. And yet, in love for them, he gives them all a heads up and lets them know that the way by which he is going to be handed over is through one of them. One of them in that very room. And what authority Jesus has, what composure our Lord has, what dignity, what sovereignty that he's able to be in the room and to look his men 
around the room in the eye and to tell them all with a calm voice, one of you will betray me, verse 21. Understandably, they're deeply grieved. And they are men who are terribly fallen. They are fallible men. We also learn that during this meal early on, they were debating who is the greatest. And some speculate that maybe had to do with who sat where around the table. That would be, you know, signify, you know, who is Jesus's favorite, who, who has the most authority in the kingdom. And, and Jesus had rebuked them and then taught them the lesson through washing their feet that he who serves them would be the greatest. These men have been just rebuked for their pride. And it may be that at this point, most of them are deeply humbled And now Jesus tells them that one of them is going to betray him. And they say to him, in grief, we're told, verse 22, deeply grieved. Each one began to ask, surely not I. There's an indication here that the disciples, except Judas, are beginning to learn the lesson of the depth of corruption of their own heart. They're beginning to learn that even though, as far as they know, they love Jesus, that they have a heart that's capable of betraying him. And so they ask him, surely not I. They're not protesting in some kind of childish way. They are deeply grieved over this. This is a meal that is, is unfolding in a way that they could never have imagined. The room has been prepared they are there with their Lord and their master. They believe he's the Messiah, but he's, been, he's kept telling them he's going to be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, the elders, and betrayed and crucified and rise on the third day. And they're trying to eat the meal. They're trying to enjoy it. They're trying to sing the psalms and celebrate the feast. But, but here it is, and their hearts are heavy. They don't understand. They're confused. They're likely sick to their stomachs because of what their Lord has told them. But Jesus knows exactly who it is. He tells John, who's closest to him, we learn in the Gospel of John, and who's leaning close to him, he who dips his hand with me in the bowl is the one who betrayed me, and it's Judas. And Jesus, in verse 24 in compassion, but also in justice, declares woe upon Judas. And Judas is led and controlled by Satan, and Judas is responsible. He hates Jesus. He hates Jesus. Jesus is not what Judas expected him to be. Judas, Jesus is not the Messiah that Judas wanted him to be. Judas wanted power, Judas wanted money, Judas wanted position, and Jesus, it looks like, is going to provide none of it. And in fury and in rage and in spite and in hatred, Judas is betraying Jesus and has such nerve and such hatred that he can actually work up the nerve to be in the room and participate in the feast of the Passover with Jesus and to look Jesus square in the eye and say, surely, verse 25, it is not I, Rabbi, 
How could Jesus possibly know? Judas is probably thinking. But Jesus said to him, and undoubtedly looking at him with knowing eyes, you have said it yourself. How could he possibly know? He's the son of man. He's the son of God. And the Holy Spirit has revealed to him exactly how this is going to unfold. Jesus knows that Judas is his betrayer. And yet Judas wa- Jesus washes Judas's feet, serves him the meal, and issues one final warning, knowing that Judas is condemned. The lamb prepares, the lamb knows. He knows who will betray him, and yet he still goes ahead calmly, willingly to do his work. Thirdly, and most significantly now, we come to verses 26 through 30. The Lord's Supper. At this point, the disciples are celebrating the Passover, the Passover meal. They know this. They've partaken of this since they were little Jewish boys. They know how this goes. They know how this is to be celebrated. Jesus, as the rabbi, is leading them at this point. But as he leads, he, he does something that they could not have expected. And in order to understand this, we need to turn to one significant Old Testament passage, Jeremiah 31. We read earlier about God's saving of Israel out of Egypt, the provision of a lamb and its blood by the means by which God would pass over. God had promised that Israel would dwell in the land, and God promised that to David that there would be a descendant of David who would sit on the throne. But God also promised that he would deal with Israel's, his people's greatest problem, which was their own hearts. Hearts like David. Even the heart after God's own heart was a heart capable in sin of murder. So God needed to give his people new heart. Otherwise, else there was no hope. And so in Jeremiah 31, and remember, Jeremiah is living in the days when the Babylonians will come and overthrow Jerusalem. The people go into exile. And from that point on, the kingdom will never be restored to the place that it had been previously known under David and Solomon and and those in the line of David. God says, even in the days when Jerusalem was overthrown, Jeremiah 31, verse 31, God says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the new covenant, rather the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
They will not each again each man each they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying know the Lord for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more God had promised that he would provide a way for their sin to be remembered no more. For them to have a new heart, Ezekiel 36 also refers to this change of heart that God would make in his people. That is the significant background to the last Passover and the institution of the Lord's Supper. The disciples maybe didn't understand it fully, but God, when he instituted the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover meal intended not only for Israel to look back at a time in which he provided for escape from bondage in Egypt, but God was providing through the Passover meal and the Feast of Unleavened Bread a looking forward to the time when God would provide a lamb through whose blood there would make there would be made atonement for sin to account for the sins of his people and remove them as far as the east is from the west. For the disciples, it is primary a looking back. Jesus understands it was never for merely the purpose of looking back at a historical moment. It was that and it was meant by God to point Israel forward to the means of salvation from sin and judgment. In verse 26 of Matthew 26, Jesus took bread. This would be unleavened bread. Remember, this is the feast of unleavened bread. Care has been taken. There is no leaven in that room. There is no leaven in the area. This is unleavened bread that the Lord has taken in accordance with the Old Testament law. And he takes that bread And after a blessing, just as would be done by a rabbi or a father of the house, giving thanks to God, he broke that bread and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. We're going to read these words in just a few moments when we come to the table. One of the great confusions that sometimes happens is we we think, oh, well, Jesus' body was broken on the cross, and that's what he means. Well, actually, not one of his bones were broken on the cross in fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Not one bone of the lamb, the Passover lamb, was to be broken, and not one bone of Christ was broken on the cross. So the significance is not firstly that somehow Christ's body was broken on the cross, but rather that just as, as unleavened bread, they didn't, in other words, God brought his people out of Egypt with haste. They didn't have time for the leaven and for the bread to rise. God was removing his people decisively out of Egypt and that unleavened bread, they remember the, the dough they just put in sacks over their shoulders. They were brought out of Egypt so quickly. That unleavened bread was their provision in the wilderness when they came out. 
And Christ, his life, both his life lived for us and his life now is the provision of God for we who are his people as he brings us out of slavery to this kingdom of darkness and to sin. Jesus said, you can do nothing apart from me. And don't many of us grieve that somehow we can't get that simple lesson into our thick heads. I'm speaking of myself. You cannot trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and then carry on your own merry way. He is the bread of life. We live by him and by him alone. He is, his perfect life is God's provision of righteousness for us, sustenance for us. He is our bread. Sinless, without leaven, a sinless life, our sinless Savior is our spiritual sustenance. He is our righteousness. He is the only means, the only way by which we live. He gives himself to us, not to one of us, but to all of his people. We share in one Christ. We share in one life. We share in one provision of God for his people. There is no other. Take, eat, this is my body. When we take in a few moments this cracker, gluten-free, I don't think it's unleavened. You know, and I, I respect those who would say, well, it really should be unleavened, and I, perhaps an argument can be made for that. But I think we err if we fixate on the, the substance of the bread and not the substance of what it signifies. It is a representation of the body, the righteous, sinless life and body of our Lord Jesus Christ. The only reason I am not damned this morning, and you, if you're a believer, is because there is a body, risen, glorified, sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's the only reason. There's a body. There's a life. Not just lived in the past, but a life that yet lives, that is righteous, and that is given for you and for me and for all who believe. Christ is the bread of life. His life, his body. He is our spiritual sustenance. The disciples are taken aback. Take, eat, this is my body. They are not cannibals. Uh, They they are kosher. They not only don't eat human meat, they don't eat swine's flesh and so forth. Take, eat, this is my body. But Jesus is taking this revered, God-given institution of the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, and Jesus at this very moment in redemptive history is transforming it and changing it so that now this meal, this eating of the bread and the drinking of the juice, points not primarily backward at the escape from Egypt, but it points to Christ, his cross, 
and escape from sin. Things get even more controversial, if you will, when Jesus takes the cup, verse 27, and again, as would be the case in the liturgy or the order of the feast, he gives thanks to God and blesses the cup. And he says to each of them, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood. Now let's just stop there. That's not how it works. When the lamb is slain, its blood is collected carefully, meticulously. Because that blood in Egypt, way back, had to be sprinkled or spread on the doorframe, on the lintel. In, in Jesus' day, blood would be splashed against the altar. Blood would be flowing in the stream outside the temple, and it would just be blood. But the blood signifying faith in God's provision to escape judgment. But they didn't drink blood. They didn't drink the lamb's blood. In fact, Israelites, true Jews, were bound by God not to drink blood. They were not to ever even eat meat. Rare was not an option for how they had their steak cooked because there might be still some blood in it. God had ordered that they would not drink blood, and Jesus now is taking the cup of wine, grape juice, a little bit of wine. It's a watered-down wine, and, and he's giving it to them, and he's saying, drink, this is my blood. In other words, drink my blood. It's not literally his blood, but still, even the imagery is shocking. This is my blood of the covenant. What covenant? Jeremiah 31, 31. That covenant that God had promised by which God would remove sin from Israel, from his people, and remember their sins no more. The blood of a lamb slain and sprinkled now signifies the blood of Christ for forgiveness of sins. A cup that looked back now looks forward or upward, as it were, to the cross of Christ, the blood of Christ. It would have been shocking for the disciples. But the lamb here is offering his own body and his own blood and declaring that his blood is the way, the means by which God establishes the new covenant. That whoever trusts in Christ, just as the, as the Israelites of old trusted in God's promise and they hastily put blood on the doorframe so that their family would escape the judgment of God, God provides the blood of this lamb, his own son, that whoever trusts in him escapes judgment. And not only that, God remembers his or her sins no more. According to the covenant God has established. It's marvelous. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out, verse 28, for, the, for many for the forgiveness of sins. That guards against universalism, by the way. There's no teaching in Scripture that Jesus' death makes it so that everybody escapes judgment. 
he says, poured out for many, not all, but for those who trust, those who will believe. Many for the forgiveness of sins. Not the kicking of those sins down the road, not the postponing of them, not for spending time in purgatory to try to get rid of, for the absolute final atonement and forgiveness of sins. Sins of any kind, sins of the worst kind, for any who will hear, believe, and trust in the blood of the Lamb. Amazing. And Jesus, verse 29, points his disciples forward in hope. I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There's a day coming when a cup is going to go to Jesus' lips, his resurrected, glorified lips. And with that holy mouth, he is going to drink from that cup with all of his people gathered there with him in celebration of the beginning of the kingdom of God on earth, world without end. But it all happens because Jesus was willing to offer himself up as a lamb. Then in verse 30, we read, and to us this is almost incidental, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. It's a transition verse. But we know from history that that wasn't just any hymn. If you want to turn in closing to Psalm 118. Again, during this Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover, Psalms 111 through Psalm 118 would be sung. And I just want to direct your attention to the end of Psalm 118 because it is possible that These are the words, the last psalm that Jesus sang with his disciples before he went to the Mount of Olives and was betrayed. And consider the significance of this. Beginning in Psalm 118, verse 22, and we'll read through the end. So think about it. Jesus is singing in the room. He's singing this Psalm 118 with his disciples. And they come to these words. And Jesus is singing these words with his men, knowing he's about to be betrayed. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Wow. He's just about to be betrayed. He's already been rejected by the chief priests and elders. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Well, in this instance, the lamb is going to be the one 
who binds himself, as it were. You are my God, verse 28, I give thanks to you. You are my God, I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Wow. Let's worship Jesus now as we come to the table. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for your faithfulness to your promises and the promises of your Father that when we are faithless, you remain faithful. We have no words to express our gratitude and our thanks for your willingness to offer up yourself, to bind yourself to the altar, to be slain for sinners, to have your blood shed and poured out for the forgiveness of many of their sins. Oh God, this morning we're trusting in your provision, in the lamb that was slain. We have no other hope. We turn from our self-sufficiency, from our pride. We confess with David the corruption of our hearts. We confess, O oh God and Lord Jesus, that if you had not determined to save us, we would have been damned. And so we bless you. We praise you. We worship you. And now we, as we come to the table and eat this cracker and drink this grape juice, we proclaim, Lord Jesus, your sacrificial sin-atoning death until that time when you come again. Be praised now in these next moments. In the hearts and minds of your people, we ask. Amen.